There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on May the 5th, 2010. For the newcomers out there, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. Scroll down, bookmark all the sites I have up there because the com goes down once in a while. That way you, you can always get the latest shows for download for free if the com goes down. And it, it's, it's amazing how they can give you um, automatic extension of bandwidth, and that's what you're paying for. And then when you try it one night, it doesn't work. And then they tell you with all their staff worldwide, they just can't figure out your particular problem. But it's on their end, and they'll get to work with it. So I've had this before with them. So if you get problems with the com, you can always look into the other sites. Now remember, on all these sites I have up there, you can get English transcripts of the talks I give to for download for print-up. And if you go into alanwattsentinel.eu, you can also get uh, transcripts in different languages as well as the audios. So they all have audios, they all have English uh, transcripts, but only the Sentinel site has uh, the foreign languages too. And remember too, you're the audience that brings me to you. The ads you hear on this show uh, are paid by advertisers directly to RBN. That pays for this airtime, pays for the staff and equipment and their bills. So it's up to you to keep me going. So buy the books I have for sale. They're different from the other books you'll read. I try to teach you to think in a non-linear fashion. There's many ways to to see uh, or to get to a particular destination. And if you understand the different techniques used by big players, strategists, they don't think linearly. They know we do, of course. They've trained us to think that way from schooling. And they go all over the place to get to their objectives. And that's why most folk never really figure it out till it's too late. You're already, you've actually gone along the path they've set out for you to go, even with your protests. So buy the books, the discs, and so on I have for sale, and that will help me just take over because the expenses here are pretty high. And remember, too, you can, from the U.S. to Canada, personal checks are good. Uh, or you can use international postal money orders from your post office. You can also use PayPal for donations or for purchasing the books or discs. If you want to purchase something with PayPal, just send a separate email along with the PayPal uh, donation and give me your name and address, order, and I'll get it out to you. MoneyGram Western Union is good too. Same across the rest of the world. Some people just send cash and facts to cut out the guy with the podgy fingers who's always getting us into trouble. And you can order through Western Union, MoneyGram, Cash, or PayPal uh, from any country so far. Uh, so far, I say, because things are changing fast everywhere with the IMF and so on. And for those who get the disc burned and passed to them, you can get in touch with me at Alan Watt, Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, Canada. The postal code is P for Peter, the number 3, E for Elizabeth, the number 4, N for Nora, and the number 1, P3E4N1. Remember, too, that the topics I mention, I usually give links 
to these topics so you can look them up for yourself. I don't make up the stories. I don't speculate either. I use the official sources, at least because there's too many people speculating these days. And even then, I try to work through the stories with you from the mainstream to show you what else is behind it, the stuff they don't tell you in the particular story. Most of these news articles are meant to lead us along the path, again, of linear thinking until one day we'll breathe a sigh of relief. For example, when the IMF takes over the planet on behalf of the World Bank, we'll say, thank goodness they'll fix it at last, but they're going to take you through a period of chaos first. Very old techniques, and we go through them all the time, down through the centuries. But that's how the world is really run. It's run by very wise men who are taught from archives of histories in economics. Economics is a very, very old science. We'll be back with more after the following break. through the matrix. Saying before that economics is a very old science, and it truly is, it's probably something that's been of vital importance, keeping records, uh, keeping records of money owed to countries, owed by countries, and to whom, and all the rest of it, and trends in history as they go down through the ages. And bankers, of course, really, uh, who ran the commercial routes in ancient times, they owned the fleets of ships that did trading, still do today a lot of them. Uh, they really had to keep uh, records of how the rises of nations and empires happened, and they'd often guide them along, in fact, and sometimes they'd even take them down if uh, the empires turned against them for some reason or another, or they owed them too much money. So it was an exact science of manipulation, and the bankers learned their trades very well. These were international bankers, even in ancient times. Uh, it goes back as far as we know about of money itself, even before the coined money, when they used to weigh it out, uh, the bankers were heavily involved in lending money to different nations and even introducing money into certain areas through warfare from countries that they also had conquered, already had conquered through economic means. And they build up empires. It's a fascinating story when you read the histories that we know of, the little that's been given to the public about the Phoenicians and, and different peoples down through the ages. But this has never been lost. It's never been lost. And uh, whereas in our schools and universities, they tended to focus on the rise of nations and conquerors and generals and all this kind of stuff, the bankers were teaching their offspring the true history that ran all this stuff and manipulated it and brought them up and brought them down, down through time. Very important sciences. And what we're going through today is just the, the shake-up of the beginnings, really, of maybe the end of the first part of the New World Order, at least this New World Order. There's been many in the past, but truly world order, for the first time, a truly world order. Many have tried it before, many have had ambitions, but they didn't quite succeed, although, in a sense, each major war, world war, tended to bring us closer to it. It's set up, for instance, the institutions that are bringing in this world order, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, and so on. So these are all the instruments to bring in a truly world order. Now, People, when they start classes in economics, are told off the bat that uh, 
economics really is what every country's system revolves around. So money is at the heart of it all. All your laws, uh, even to do with uh, prison sentencing or the death penalty or whatever, all revolve around economics. And believe you me, if it suits the people to have more people in prison than behead them, they'll do so, or vice versa. They can go back and forth either way. And they have done that down through history too. So all of your, your laws, all of your taxation systems, everything comes down through economics, including the, the particular system if you're going to be a nation of workers or employ, employees rather than employers. And, of course, many of the countries in Europe and Britain is a very good example where training their, their students for many generations to be employees. Uh, and they certainly never encouraged them to get into private business. So uh, there are people who design these systems. There are people who manage the systems intergenerationally and bring them to their final destination. The other systems which also the same people control, they've tried down through the ages, the, the Nazi type or fascism type and so-called democratic type, and have also controlled the Soviet type. The Soviet type is a form of collectivization uh, and even the Soviets, remember, would often call themselves democratic. Democratic simply means that the ones at the top get to vote. It doesn't really matter if the masses vote or not. Uh, they often say that Greece was the home of democracy, but really about 25% of the people there were actually called citizens because it improved their genealogies for a few generations, very much like the Nazi regime, in fact. And the bulk of the populations were basically nobodies, although they did all the work, and the rest were all slaves, an awful lot of slaves. But those at the top were allowed to vote on all major decisions. And so, in a sense, you had fascists running a democracy. In fact, I've often said that democracy is the greatest cover for fascism. You know, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton himself, uh, who was widely read and often hated by even the patriot community, because he, he did uh, prefer tyrants and powerful people down through the ages, according to Thomas Jefferson's writings, when he met Hamilton on a few occasions. And um, when Jefferson asked him why he admired the tyrants, he says, well, when you have a tyrant, things tend to go smoothly for a while. Uh, there's less interference. There's, in other words, um, this very small government... And he also said if the guy gets too bad for the people, very unbearable, you might have to suffer him for one generation. Whereas, you, And you've only got him and his family to keep and his little army sort of thing. Whereas if you have a, a government with lots of bureaucrats, he was preparing to democracy. It says you've got thousands and their families to keep in luxury. And they're there for perpetuity. So who's right? You know, you think about the two systems. So really, democracy is the greatest cover for fascism because it always ends up with a special elite class, intergenerational, uh, often interfamilial, the, the uh, generation to generation from the same families and the up-and-coming psychopaths, of course, that join them, go through the right universities, get the right contracts because they've played the game and they're allowed in and allowed to be voted upon and into power to get their piece of the pie but they've all proved themselves to the already existing elite at the top, but they'd never get a chance of getting in. The guys at the top are always pre-picked, as Professor Carl Quigley said, by the Council on Foreign Relations. doesn't matter what party they come from. 
And now we truly have uh, really the beginnings of a world order with a one economic system, and we see the chaos that's falling out across Europe. That's planned chaos, by the way, just the same as 9-11 was definitely planned because it couldn't have kicked off the massive surveillance society without 9-11 happening. A surveillance society is imperative if you bring in a totalitarian regime across the whole planet and a whole new way of living. You either knock people into shape uh, physically to go along with what you want uh, and take care of the riots that will obviously ensue when people lose their sovereignty, or you give them other reasons for bonding, binding together. Even, again, ancient Greece, they, they had alliances. They started off with alliances with different uh, little islands and, and city-states around them and eventually dominated them like an empire. That's how democracy always goes. And under the guise of democracy, these guys and the bankers behind them have literally, with the setting up of the IMF, the World Bank, uh, and the chaos to bring them step by step to their true goal, which is the running the total world economy uh, from a one major source. Uh, that's how it's done. It's just through chaos and planned chaos. And they always come out at the end and say, we're well, here as the saviors, here's the plan. And by that time, even though we've lost almost everything, we want to keep that little bit left. So we say, thank goodness, maybe we can hang on to this little piece here of what we had. That's an old, old technique, but we, we never really catch on. Most folk still think that governments are national governments. They haven't been national for an awful long time. Uh, it was decided even during the Cold War through different publications, official publications, that if the Soviet system didn't take over the world, then those who would defeat the Soviet system would have to take over the world. The exact same excuse that ancient Greece took for for taking over all the countries round about it to save them all against Persia. It was bond together against Persia. And then, of course, Greece simply dominated all, or Athens dominated all those countries, became tyrannical. Heavy taxations took all their, their food, their, their, their grain, so on from them, and turned lots of people into slaves. That's really what world orders are about. It's really who's going to be the bosses, how many bosses do you need to run all the people, and how many slaves are you going to have. Slavery can, can take so many forms. And wage slaves, of course, is what you call employees. That's what they've always been called. You sell your labor. And if you're getting paid back in a fair deal for your labor, or whatever you've decided upon, or whatever your boss has decided upon, I should say, uh, then, then a good chunk of that simply taxed back by the governments that are there to keep you safe. And as they keep you safe, they live very well uh, at a very high standard of living, way above what you could ever afford, and that's the system of what they call democracy, where they bring in what's called equality. It's a sort of strange concept, you know. You've got to do a lot of mental gymnastics to even uh, try and pretend you believe in it. And lots of people do. They never even question it at all. In fact, most never question anything. They just go along with what is, is what, they, what exists when they're born and what they live through. That's what is. That's as far as they get. And what is, is. It's good enough for them. But if you look at what's happening in Greece right now, and I knew they would use Greece as the, the testing bed for the rest of, of Europe, and they'll blame Greece for, for the, a lot of the causes. Uh, the, what they said at the beginning was Greece had fudged all its books to get into the EU. 
and to be allowed to trade with the EU. Of course, if they didn't join the EU, they'd have been bypassed and cut off from all the goodies. You've been bypassed from even exporting your own stuff to the rest of the EU. That's the deal. It's a gangster thing, you see. Trade with us, go under our laws and our rules, give up your sovereignty, and you'll be allowed to trade with us. If you don't, no one's going to trade with you. We'll make sure of that. So they're blaming Greece for all the problems if they pick somebody, you see. But they all fudge their books because bookkeeping is just that. It's all fudging books, isn't it? And I don't think one single country in Europe has ever been honest about what it owes to anybody. I still got this allergy from this time of year. So anyway, here's an article here from Reuters, May the 4th, 2010. And it's about uh, our new selling frenzy gripped the Eurozone financial markets on Thursday because they're concerned about a financial meltdown beginning with Greece because it's going to spread throughout Europe back after these messages. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Reading an article about the, the Greek crisis right now. And the Greece, as I say, Greece is getting blamed for so much. And every country involved really has done the same bookkeeping, uh, fudging, as Greece, I'm sure, did. And they did get the big boys in to validate their books before they joined the EU. I think even Goldman Sachs was in there fudging the books for them. But this article here, made the 4th, 2010, from Reuters, goes into it and says a renewed selling frenzy gripped the Eurozone financial markets on Tuesday as concern mounted that a record economic union international monetary fund bailout for Greece would not stop a debt crisis spreading in the single currency area. Now, that's another part of joining the EU. They force this EU coinage or, or money system on you as well, you see. Again, taking more and more sovereignty out of the hands of the countries. That's the intention of it, but not the total intent. The intent ultimately is to go into a world system under the IMF. And the IMF wants to get into everybody's bookkeeping and take away that bookkeeping from governments. This is what it's about for the world order, you see. And all the money that's already been bailed into Greece, apparently it hasn't been enough to to stop the the fall in, in the money system. Uh, so that means that all that money that was borrowed from the World Bank by the EU countries has just gone to money heaven, just like the big last crash we had went to money heaven, you know. I like to see who's the guardians of money heaven. Must go somewhere. But the Spanish Prime Minister José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero dismissed his complete madness a market rumor that his country would soon ask for 280 billion euros in aid from the euro area, because I think Spain's going to be next. The euro sank to a one-year low beneath $1.31, and the risk premium on Greek, Portuguese, and Spanish bonds soared amid jitters about a possible Greek debt restructuring and worries over the fiscal health of other southern European countries. This is in Athens striking public workers challenged Greece's 110 billion euro bailout for austerity deal. I love that bailout for austerity. 
starting at a 48 uh, national strike that shut down the ministries, tax offices, schools, hospitals and public services. You see, the IMF go in, as I say, and they strip the country of all its national services, healthcare, pension funds, wherever they can slash and burn, they do so to make sure that the big boys that lent the money in the first place all get paid back at massive interest. It says there's no faith in what the EU and the International Monetary Fund have proposed for Greece, said Dean Popplewell, chief currency strategist of the ONDA and a foreign exchange brokerage in Toronto. The capital markets are betting on a Greek default. See there again, you see there again, there's this guys, because uh, we don't understand this, this uh, currency trading stuff and the sharks at the top that, as I say, they're taught it since they're, they're weaned on this stuff. Because they belong to the right families. They make money off people going down. They bet on people going down. And it says that the capital markets are betting on a Greek default as Greece's own populace is not going to accept the terms of this rescue and contagion is a real concern hurting the euro, he said. News that Greece has appointed debt restructuring specialist Lazards to provide the Lazard brothers to preside a general financial advice fueled speculation that some form of ordinary rescheduling or payment moratorium may be likely despite vehement official denials and so on it goes. But this is all to go to a world government, you see, a whole new way of doing things where the World Bank will rise up to its proper status because that's what they put it there for, to take over an international monetary fund. Uh, and the Bank of International Settlements will do the bookkeeping of every country forever. Your, your governments won't have to do that anymore. It's taken out their hands. That's the ultimate goal for the whole planet. And then we go on to an article here. It's a good site, actually. It's a Spotlight on Sovereignty, Global Governance Watch. It says the G20 and IMF officials institutionalize economic global governance. That's April 28, 2010. It says, in particular, we are floating the idea of a new multilateral surveillance procedure. I believe the world is ready for a shift to this more systemic vision of IMF surveillance. That's what they're calling it, International Monetary Fund Surveillance, the whole world. A clear indication is the G20s. That's all the, the group of 20 where all your presidents and prime ministers and all that join and go in there as a group bypassing what you think is national democracy. And it says, as a launch of the, of the mutual assessment process, this is the MAP, the so-called MAP aims to reduce risk to the system by making the world's largest economies accountable to each other for ensuring the global consistency of their economic policies. Of course, there's a much broader range of international policy challenges than those currently being considered by the MAP and an enhanced multilateral approach with increased accountability between countries is essential for finding lasting solutions. I see a role for the International Monetary Fund to help address these kinds of multilateral problems. That's right on track with them taking over. That's from an address by Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, at the Bretton Woods Committee Annual Meeting, Washington, D.C., February 26, 2010. The group of 20 G20 nations, the new Financial Stability Boards, the FSB, and the International Monetary Funds are progressing on two fronts. The monitoring and revision of national and regional economic plans to facilitate global economic governance. That's the purpose of, the purpose of it, to facilitate global economic governance. 
and the pursuit of a financial industry regulatory reform agenda. The recent remarks of IMF Managing Director Strauss-Kahn indicate that these two areas may only be the beginning and that's that efforts will be made to globally govern other economic and industry-specific areas. We're back with more on this after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, reading from an article by Global Governance Watch. Very good article, it's a good site actually, and you're not quite sure if it's for the globalism or what, but they also have a lot on NGOs and it shows you what they're into as well. But it goes on, it's going on about the IMF basically taking over and it's using uh, quotes and so on from Strauss-Kahn from the IMF and so on. It says, thus corporate executives, employees, shareholders and other stakeholders in industries such as energy, pharmaceutical and food whose products or lack thereof pose risks that conceivably contribute to global poverty should be prepared for a new global level of monitoring intervention and regulation by the G20, the IMF, the World Bank and other international organizations. In other words, they're telling you that, that whatever corporations, whatever in your countries, will no longer be um, self-enterprising units. They'll be under the auspices and the watchful eye of the World Bank because the World Bank will be into everybody's books by law. They want a world law for this to let them into every country's books and actually eventually do all the bookkeeping. That's utterly the end of sovereignty for anybody, you see. This is in a previous article by this author, and the link is here. The author explained that in November 2009, communique titled A Framework for Strong, Sustainable and Balanced Growth, Developing the Mutual Assessment Process, the G20 announced the Mutual Assessment Process, or MEP, pursuant to G20 members, would present national and regional economic plans by the end of January 2010 for review by the FSB and the IMF, so that Alternative policy options could be developed that would enable the global management of national and regional economies. Okay, That's the important part. They've already agreed to it through all the big boys in the G20 uh, that would enable the global management of national and regional economies. Now that also means managing all the taxation systems ultimately as well, which of course is the goal of uh, these guys in, at, under the auspices of the UN. Very interesting articles here. And I'll put these links in at cuttingthroughthematrix.com website at the end of the show. And you'll find them along in the archive section as well, along with the audios. Now, just to prop that up too, uh, there's an article coming out um, of India, I think it is actually, and it says the BRIC must create a new world order. Uh, the BRIC, group of the world's four biggest emerging powers, has a fundamental role in creating a new world order. Brazil's President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva said on Thursday. Lula was speaking at the end of a summit in Brasilia with the leaders of China, India and Russia. 
the countries reiterated their call for developing nations to have a bigger role in global economic and financial decision-making. The Prime Minister pitches for close cooperation amongst the BRIC nations. Uh, Noting that India, Russia, China and Brazil are resource-rich, Prime Minister uh, Manmohan Singh on Friday pitched for close cooperation among them in the fields of energy and food security, besides tapping potential in other sectors like trade and investment, science, technology and infrastructure. So there's that that phrase again, a new world order, blah, blah, blah. It's okay when the big boys say it themselves, like... Um, Mr. Brown in Britain, when he addressed the G20 before, you called it the New World Order, and many others, George Bush Sr. But when we say it, it's like we're some kind of paranoid crazies, even though we're simply using their material and quoting them. But that's really what's happening, and that's what all this chaos today is all about. It's planned chaos, mind you. It's not just happening now either. They've been working at this for an awful, awful long time. Awful long time. And there's a very good article here I'm going to put in the link as well. It's called Reinventing the Government Corporation. This was done on April the 11th, 1996. And it's by a Michael Frumkin. Uh, it says, in this article, Professor A. Michael Frumkin takes a com- comprehensive look at federal government, government corporations. Federal government corporations. It's very interesting, these Corporations, other countries call them crown corporations. They're untouchable, very private. They do have shareholders, but they're not uh, available for the public. It says, focusing on the legal implications arising from their character as both public and private entities. Federal government corporations often enjoy public advantages, including national establishment, tax and security law exemptions, sovereign immunity, and privileged access to capital. As a result, they face diminished market discipline and may not be as efficient as their proponents claim unless they have similarly situated competitors. Because some federal government corporations are owned wholly or partly by private parties, they maintain control over public funds and functions. Their legal status raises important constitutional questions concerning accountability and separation of powers and non-delegation. In its 1993 Reinventing Government program, Vice President Al Gore encouraged the proliferation of federal government corporations. And that's true. During that, uh, that era, uh, they, 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 they sprung up all over the place under the auspices of Al Gore and Clinton and so on. Obscure government devices whose legal status remains unclear even after 200 years as part of our national life. Professor Frumkin suggests that some regulatory reform is needed before the suggestion is adopted. After a critical analysis of existing proposals, he offers alternative designs to increase accountability to both government and market discipline, thus ensuring that private parties do not profit at public expense and limiting taxpayer liability in the event of insolvency. I'd like to see that happen, where the big boys go belly up and we have to bail them out as usual. But then pigs might fly one day too, with enough genetic engineering, I should say. But that's what we're going through. Now, we've all to go through this this new austerity stuff as the IMF goes into every single country and takes over basically the bookkeeping. And that also means it always follows the same routine as to say slashing uh, hospital care, uh, slashing your pension funds and robbing you actually. 
and cutting back all the stuff that you're supposed to have built up through your tax money, all the different um, services that the government is supposed to run. This is from the Times, April the 30th, 2010. Austerity Britain will hate its new government, says King. The governor of the Bank of England was at the centre of an electoral storm last night after saying that the austerity measures needed to tackle Britain's budget deficit would be so unpopular that whoever wins next week would not get back into government for a generation. uh, Mervyn King's opinion revealed hours before the prime ministerial debate on the economy came as a respected think tank predicted that taxes would have to rise by the equivalent of a 6p as pence in the pound increase in income tax over the next 10 years. Well, that's that's tiddlywinks. It's going to go up by a lot more than that. A lot more than that. The government's prediction was made to the American economist David Hale, who passed on the remarks in an Australian television show. Mr. Hale, who has known Mr. King for years, was commenting on debt levels in major economies when he turned to the British election. I saw the governor of the Bank of England last week when I was in London, he says, and he says, whoever wins this election will be out of power for a whole generation because of how tough the fiscal austerity will have to be, he said. So we're in for wonderful times, it would seem. Just, just wonderful, wonderful times. Wonderful times. Now, this, this site is very good too, and it links up with uh, the previous one I talked about, the G20. And it's from the, the AEI, which is supposedly a conservative uh, sort of think tank, but they have branches across the whole world. And it's supposed to be to limit government and all that, but it's all about globalism. I'll put this link up too. It says, and it's called, the, they have a shadow financial regulatory committee. It's one of, the, one of their projects. A shadow financial regulatory committee. What's a shadow? Now, a shadow is something that, that's put off by a body, you see. This would be a body there somewhere. I wonder who the body is. Anyway, says the Shadow Financial Regulatory Committee is a group of publicly recognized independent experts in the financial services industry who meet regularly to study and critique regulatory policies affecting the sector of the economy. This is um, about the committee. The Shadow Financial Regulatory Committee works to identify and analyze developing trends and ongoing events that promise to affect the efficiency and safe operation of sectors of the financial services industry explore the spectrum of short- and long-term implications of emerging problems and policy changes, help develop private regulatory and legislative responses to such problems that promote efficiency and safety, blah, 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 blah. But when you look at the site of it, the site of it, they've got an awful lot of good uh, spin-off sites that they look into, such as non-governmental organizations, who runs them, and it shows you the power of some of these non-government organizations as they lobby, uh, not just politicians, but actually lobby against investing companies. And, of course, they're all followers, you see, except for the leaders. The leaders have a boss. The boss generally is some very rich foundation owner who tells them what to protest against. But it's, it's quite uh, fascinating to, to see how, how they work. And I'll put a link up to that as well to show you how the non-governmental organizations actually will go into companies that are trying to invest pension funds and so on. And if they don't like what they're investing in, they'll do all they can to stop it. And that's what you call incredible organization and power. See, organization is behind everything. That's how the Soviets talked about taking over by communism. It was all through organization, massive organization, 
where everybody instantly obeys those above them, right up the pyramid top. Strict obedience. There was no deviation from the line. And that's how these NGOs are run with the foundations. They really are the parallel government on the top telling them what to protest, etc. Now, here's a little aside, too, about I'm talking about these crowd corporations a minute ago and these private uh, um, national corporations or governmental semi-private companies. Here's a little article that snuck through, and it wasn't in the mainstream media except for this one, and it's a Tehran Times from Iran. The UK to repay Iran $650 million for tanks. The UK to repay, that's, that's military tanks. This is London, UPI. Um, an international trade court ordered Britain to pay Iran $650 million for failing to deliver some 1,300 tanks after the Shah Mohammed Reza Pahlavi was toppled in the 1979 Islamic Revolution, officials said. The ruling ended a bizarre legal battle which was fought over 30 years largely behind closed doors in the arbitration court of the International Chamber of Commerce in The Hague with little public knowledge. You're darn right. The settlement is between International Military Services Limited, the state-owned company used by Britain's Defence Ministry. See, that's one of these protected companies, these crown corporations. It's private, it's funded through tax money as well, but there, there are shareholders who profit from it, but they're not allowed to tell us who they are. And they don't put the shares up for bids for sale. But it's all the elite, of course, who are actually the shareholders, including members of the royalty. And that's the International Military Services Limited. They do all the military, main military trading of all the weapons industry for Britain. So anyway, um, it says the state-owned companies where Britain's defence ministry that conclude the Chieftain tank deal in the 1970s in Iran's Ministry of Defence. Britain's The Independent newspaper noted that the settlement will bring to an end one of the most tortuous and murky sagas in that most opaque and scandal-riddled area of international affairs, nation-to-nation arms deals. Yet Britain's always created the best enemies that money could buy. Believe you me. And through the Hague, even even those who lose will have to pay it back. They've got all these global deals already made through their international courts and the Bank of International Settlements. You know, when Britain uh, went to war with Argentina over the Falklands, Britain had sold pretty well every ship that the, the, that they used, the enemy used, to them. And, of course, uh, you found, too, that Argentina had took, taken loans out from all the usual international monetary to buy those ships. And were still in the, in the process of buying them when Britain sunk them. So Britain sold them the ships, Britain sunk the ships, and Argentina, even though they lost, had to pay back the bankers. And then the money went back to Britain. Best enemies money can buy, eh? And the folk never catch on. And all the young characters are just dying to dress up and play soldier and go off and fight for some fun and all that kind of stuff. And get a little tin star, a wee medal. That's all they need. And suddenly there's somebody, for a little, if they survive it, there's somebody until the novelty wears off. And they're just Joe Nobody once again. But it says here, in the 1970s, the Shah's government was favoured by the United States and Britain as a vital bulwark against Soviet expansion to the strategic strategic oil-rich Persian Gulf. 
In 71 and 76, his government ordered 1,500 chieftain tanks and 250 FV-244 armoured repair vehicles, which retrieved damaged tanks from the battlefield, all manufactured by the Leyland Company, that's the big car manufacturers in Britain, and Britain's state-owned Royal Ordnance Factories. Again, state-owned Royal Ordnance Factories, that's really a crown corporations. These secretive corporations. At that time, the FV-4030-1 Chieftain was Britain's primary main battle tank when it was unveiled in 67 at the most powerful main gun of any tank in the world. And it was on about what they could fire per minute and all that kind of stuff. The stuff that really little boys are awfully interested in. And the contracts were worth £650 million today, worth around £1.4 billion. But it shows you inflation, eh? So back in the 70s, it was worth £650 million. Today, they're worth around £1.4 billion. And were paid in full in advance from the Shah's treasury, then overflowing thanks to Iran's oil wealth. Now, these funds were crucial in keeping Britain's defence industry going at a time of slumping sales. Yeah, they've got to keep wars going when there's slumping sales, you know. But by the time the Shah was toppled in January 79, went to exile, Britain had delivered 187 of the 55-ton chieftains, which the Iranians dubbed Sheer One. The British halted deliveries to what was deemed a hostile government in Iran after the U.S. embassy in Tehran was stormed on November the 4th, 1979. So in other words, they still owed them all those tanks for the money that they took. They didn't give them back the money, you know, didn't give them the tanks either. So they basically been ordered to pay back the difference. So this shows you, as I say, it doesn't matter who wins, loses, and how things come and go in history. Uh, the bankers must be paid one way or another. Doesn't matter if you're winners or losers, you've got to pay the piper. Because they have international laws about that at the top. And it goes through the Hague, the court at the Hague. Wonderful, isn't it? Wonderful. And we the little people hardly know anything about what's really going on in the world at any any particular time. We're the last to be told any kind of close truth. Any close truth whatsoever. Now, here's a laugh, too. Because this whole emission stuff is a new economy, you understand that. It's a takeover from a real economy where you produce things, a production economy. And anti-fraud investigators swoop on EU emissions traders for fraud. So fraud over fraud is quite an interesting thing. Back after this break. We're cutting through the matrix, and this, as I say, this article here is about an anti-fraud investigation into EU emission frauds. You know that where they're making all the money off nothing, no outlay, nothing. It's fantastic. This trade carbon, and it's really worked out through mathematical processes where they imagine how much CO2 will be produced in the manufacturing of this, and they convert energy to CO2 and all that kind of stuff. And it's supposed to sound complicated to cover the fact it's all nonsense, but they're going to make an awful lot of money out of it because this is the new, this is the new economy. And we'll all be paying through the nose or through the mouth, depending on how you breathe, for CO2 for as long as you live. And these guys don't even collect it. Even it's fantastic, isn't it? No outlay. You don't have to get into plastic bags and sell, or like, or blow up balloons with it and, and trade balloons. Just, you just imagine it's there and you, you trade these credits. And we all pay for it. And big bankers get rich. Fantastic, isn't it? 
But anyway, here's the anti-fraud investigators swoop on EU emissions traders from the, the, from the um, Euro Observer, they call it. And this was uh, this is from the third. It says, Brussels, traders involved in Europe's flagship climate change program, the emissions trading system, some of whom work at Germany's biggest banks and energy firms, were the focus of a series of raids and arrests by British and German prosecutors and part of a massive pan-European crackdown on carbon dioxide, credit, value-added tax, fraud. Isn't that amazing, eh? They're getting people on fraud, even though they're dealing in legitimate fraud, which is the CO2 scam and trading. And it says here, a total of 25 people were arrested amid a blitz by authorities on hundreds of company offices in the two countries, including the Deutsche Bank and and energy firm RWE, in a case involving the theft of an estimated £180 million from government coffers. On Friday, the 30th of April, it was revealed that the UK tax authorities had raided 81 different offices and homes earlier in the week, arresting 22 individuals, 30 in England and a further 8 in Scotland. The swoop, which occurred two days earlier, involved roughly 450 staff from Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, not Britain's, but Her Majesty's, because everything in Britain's democracy is owned by Her Majesty, you see. German authorities simultaneously raided two thirty premises, two hundred thirty, including the headquarters of the Deutsche Bank Frankfurt and the office of RWE. Three individuals in Germany were arrested. Seven of the suspects were employees of Deutsche Bank, although none were among those taken into custody. The operation, which targeted a total of 50 companies and some 150 suspects in Europe's biggest economy, involved around a thousand investigators from Germany. By God, they're top heavy eh, for investigators. They goes through all the other countries that took part, uh, Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, Netherlands, Portugal, as well as Norway, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, computers, mobiles, memory sticks, and business records were seized, as well as undisclosed sums of cash. The criminal activity the raids focused on relates to what is known as carousel fraud. Criminals establish themselves in one EU member state and open a trading account with the National Carbon Credit Registry. They then buy carbon credits in a different country, which makes them exempt from the value-added tax. These are then sold to buyers in the original country, but with value-added tax slapped on. Although the value-added tax then just disappears along with the trader and the money never arrives in government coffers. Uh, Whatever scam they come up with, it's only crooks that can figure it out and how to use it. Do you ever realize that? It takes the crook's mind, the streetwise guy. To, to understand the, the con games that are going on anyway, and they take advantage of them. The, the ordinary person, again, with linear thinking, never, never figures that out. The same as you never figure out how, how guys can make such money on, on betting on companies folding, or even countries going bankrupt, and they can make a profit off of it. It's beyond our comprehension. It's totally beyond our comprehension. The crooks, the crooks can do it. The rest of the crooks are in government working for them and in the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.